Hello and welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is Journeys from the Past, and my name is Andy Davis. The purpose of these podcasts is to inspire listeners to courageous, sacrificial actions to make progress in the two journeys, the internal journey of holiness and the external journey of evangelism and missions by learning the stories of their heroic brothers and sisters in the past. Now, we were in the middle in this podcast of talking about one of the great figures in all of church history, Augustine, the great Bishop of Hippo, who was born in the year 354 and died in the year 430, a towering figure whose overwhelming writings, five million words, uh, shaped and molded the theology and the life and the practice of the Roman Catholic Church for centuries and centuries for a thousand years, really, or even beyond, up to the Reformation and even till today. So we talked about him last time. We traced out his influence. We talked about um, his gifts, and we traced out the story of his conversion, a very exciting story, and I would urge you, if you haven't heard it yet, to go back and listen. But we're in the middle of talking about some of his great influences and the aspects of his influences. And Uh, He was a controversialist. He was somebody that felt that God had given him the gifts and the platform and had positioned him to address significant issues that were facing the church. And we talked about his writings against Manichaeism, which he had walked through Manichaeism, a dualistic system of, of, uh, of a pagan religion, and uh, he wrote against and really devastated Manichaeism, and then uh, talked about the Donatism, and uh, we mentioned that last time in his writings, the anti-Donatist writings. But now we're going to talk about a lasting issue, something that is pressing on to today, and that is the issue of Pelagianism. Uh, Augustine wrote very powerfully and clearly against Pelagianism. As I'm going to say in this podcast today, it's an issue that I think continues to bother, even to plague the church. American evangelicalism, by and large, is characterized, I think, by semi-Pelagian theology. And we'll talk about what semi-Pelagianism is, but we're going to begin by talking about Pelagius himself and Pelagianism. Who was Pelagius? Well, he was a British monk who lived from the year 354 until 418. So he was about the same age as Augustine, uh, but he died earlier than Augustine did. He was an ascetic, meaning he strongly advocated a harsh treatment of the body for the sake of moral purity. He was well-educated. He was able to read and write fluently in both Latin and Greek, and he was trained in theology. His great zeal was for moral purity, a moral lifestyle, upright life by Christians. In all the people that he influenced, that's what he was after. He ministered basically in Rome. He was an able speaker, and he was very influential through his speaking, through his writing, and through his powerful personal example of holiness. But he was also a heretic. He was a heretic. His doctrine was messed up and formally rejected by the Roman Catholic Church. His home base, the home base of his theology, was the freedom of the will. Every human being is completely free at all times to make decisions and to reject evil and choose good. Every individual is free. People are not even bound by their own past decisions. At every moment, you stand at a fork in the road. That was his doctrine. He denied the doctrine of original sin in Adam, a doctrine clearly taught in Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 21. 
There the Apostle Paul makes it plain that Adam represented all human beings in the Garden of Eden, and that when he sinned, all his children sinned in him, and that we receive from Adam not only guilt and death, but also a corrupt nature bent toward doing evil. So infants die because they are human, because they are descended from Adam, even though they did not sin as Adam did by breaking a command, Paul says. But all people, if they live long enough, eventually sin exactly as Adam sinned, by breaking a known command from God. They would understand at some point the law of God written in their hearts, as Paul talks about in Romans 7, and at some point they will violate that inner law and they will sin. And Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And so Pelagius denied all of this. He denied the doctrine of original sin. He said the only thing we receive from Adam is a bad example. But that wasn't even the worst part of Pelagianism. The worst part is that he also denigrated the grace of God in Christ. He denigrated it by saying we really effectively don't need it and, it, and it doesn't come the way Augustine and others say it comes. He says the only thing we receive from Christ, on the other hand, is a good example. Effectively, that Christ and Adam have equal influence on individuals at any moment. Bad example versus good example. He said it's actually wrong to say that God must do something extra to our hearts to enable us to act morally. That would be an insult to God and His original creation. For if God gives us a command to act morally in His law, we must therefore be able to do it, or God is somehow a fool. God is somehow wrong. God doesn't understand us, or He messed up in giving us the law, etc. But in Pelagius' way of thinking, if God commands it, we can do it. That's his thinking. Pelagius was passionate about his hearers taking full responsibility for the lives they lived, for the sins they committed, for the choices they made. He became positively enraged when he read a key moment in Augustine's Confessions. You remember we talked about it last time, that Augustine prior to his conversion, was struggling deeply with sexual sin. The key moment of liberation came when in a garden uh, somewhere he heard a child saying, take up and read, take up and read, tole lege in the Latin, take up and read, and he went and found Romans 13 where God clearly commanded sexual purity. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to satisfy its lusts. Augustine said the key was understanding that it was up to God to both give the command, the moral command, and the ability to obey it. And that in order to do that, he had to do something additional by his sovereign grace to our souls to enable us to obey. So he wrote this in Confessions. My whole hope is only in your exceeding great mercy. Give what you command and command whatever you will. That's the key statement. Give what you command and command whatever you will. You impose sexual purity on us. Nevertheless, when I perceived, said someone, that I could not otherwise obtain her except that God gave her to me, that was a point of wisdom also to know whose gift she was. O oh, charity, O oh, my God, kindle me. You command sexual purity. Give what you command, then command whatever you will. Well, that's Augustine's view of what happened to him. That was his conversion. Sovereign grace came in and transformed his nature. But when Pelagius read that, he hit the roof. 
as though God were a fool for giving such a command, not knowing that we were not able to obey it. Pelagius continually asserted human freedom. We are able to do at every moment whatever the law, the law commands, or that God or God was in some way wrong to give it. In this regard, Pelagius denied the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Effectively, Pelagius was denying Christianity itself. It was just basic, simple, moralistic paganism. That's what Pelagius was teaching. Due to the copious writings of Augustine and some others, but mostly Augustine, Pelagius was declared a heretic by the Council of Ephesus in the year 431. But an adjustment of his views, called semi-Pelagianism, eventually took root and won the day in the Roman Catholic Church, became the norm until the Reformation, and is still the norm in much of evangelicalism and in Roman Catholicism. In semi-Pelagianism, the idea is that God's grace in infant baptism, prevenient grace, corrects the effects of Adam's fall and thus enables us to be free again to make moral choices. We basically end up the same place that Pelagius wanted us. Augustine became the champion of the sovereign grace of God in the gospel. He openly established and explained the doctrine of original sin. He clearly taught and supported from Scripture the doctrine of God's sovereign, eternal predestination of the elect to be saved by His sovereign grace. His careful defense of sovereign grace is no different from what eventually Martin Luther would argue against Erasmus in his classic, The Bondage of the Will, or another way to look at it is Free Will a Slave, and the detailed articulation of the theology eventually known as Calvinism. Augustine taught it over a thousand years before either of them were born. And the Apostle Paul taught it four centuries before Augustine. Now, there are a lot of different ways we could venture into this. As I said, Augustine wrote five million words, and a significant percentage of them were anti-Pelagian writings. Lots of books on this topic. So how do we even begin to wade into it? As a matter of fact, I was looking at an introductory essay on Augustine versus Pelagius by B.B. Warfield, a late 19th century Presbyterian scholar, and that went on page after page after page after page and was complex and difficult to follow, but still helpful. So you, know, you really have to work at it to wade into it. But in the middle of that introductory essay, Warfield wrote some excerpts or brought out some excerpts of a sermon that Augustine preached. And as I read it, my heart was electrified and I could see just how powerful and how skillful a handler of the Word of God Augustine really was. He was an excellent writer, excellent thinker. And because it was a sermon, it's much more accessible than some of his weightier theological uh, writings, his tomes, which are beneficial. But it's going to be more accessible for us in this Two Journeys podcast to uh, read part of this sermon. So the sermon Augustine preached, uh, he preached on September 23rd, 417. By then, the Pelagian controversy had been going on for a while. Pelagius uh, had basically lost at this point uh, politically, although it wouldn't be another 14 years before he would officially be declared a heretic. Part of the problem with Pelagius is he lied about his own teachings. And it was really his followers that kind of came out of the closet, so to speak, on open Pelagianism. But Pelagius kind of denied the things he actually was teaching. So he was a little slippery in that regard. But it was a process to eventually formally get Pelagius and his followers declared as heretics. 
But anyway, Augustine preached this sermon on September 23rd, the year 417, and it was from John chapter 6, the latter part of it, verse 54 to 66, which ends, as you remember, in Jesus making amazing, seemingly outrageous assertions, saying, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you, that teaching uh, that he gives, where in the end, a lot of his disciples stopped following him. So Pelagius is preaching on that, and this is what he said. We hear here the true master, the divine redeemer, the human savior, commending to us our ransom, which is his blood. He calls his body food and his blood drink. And in commanding such food and drink, he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. What then is this eating and drinking but to live? Eat life, drink life. You shall have life and life is whole. This will come, that is, the body and blood of Christ will be life to everyone if what is taken visibly in the sacrament, by that he means the communion, the bread and wine, if what is taken visibly in the sacrament is in real truth spiritually eaten and spiritually drunk, but that he might teach us that even to believe in him is of a gift and not merit, Earlier in the chapter, he said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Draws him, not leads him. This violence is done to the heart, not to the flesh. Why do you marvel? Believe and you come. Love and you are drawn. Think not that this is harsh, injurious violence. It is soft. It is sweet. It is sweetness itself that draws you. Is not the sheep drawn when the succulent plants are shown to him? And I think that there is no compulsion of the body here, but an assembling of the desire. So too do you come to Christ. Wish not to plan a long journey. When you believe, then you come. For to him who is everywhere, one comes by loving, not by taking a voyage. No doubt, if you come not, it is your work. But if you do come, it is God's work. Let me say that again. No doubt, if you come not, it is your work. But if you do come, it is God's work. And even after you have come and are walking in the right way, become not proud, lest you perish from it. Happy are those that trust in Him, not in themselves, but in Him. We are saved by grace None of ourselves, it is the gift of God. Why do I continually say this to you? It is because there are men who are ungrateful to grace and attribute much to the unaided and wounded nature of man. It is true that man received great powers of free will at his creation, but he lost them by sinning. He has fallen into death. He has been made weak. He has been left half dead in the way by robbers, the good Samaritan has lifted him up upon his donkey and borne him to the inn. Why should we boast? But I am told that it is enough that sins are remitted in baptism. But does the removal of sin take away our weakness too? What? Will you not see in that story that after the pouring of the oil and the wine into the wounds of the man left half dead by robbers, he must still go to the inn where his weakness may be healed? Nay, so long as we are in this life, 
We bear a fragile body. It is only after we are redeemed from corruption through resurrection that we shall find no sin and receive at last the crown of righteousness. Grace that was hidden in the Old Testament is now made manifest to the whole world. Even though the Jew may be ignorant of it, why should Christians be enemies of grace? Why presumptuous of themselves? Why ungrateful to grace? For why did Christ come? Was not nature already here? Free will nature was already here. That very nature by the praise of which you are beguiled. Was not the law already here? But the apostle said, If righteousness could come by the law, then Christ died for nothing. What the apostle says of the law, that we may say to these men about free will in our nature. If righteousness could come by nature, then Christ died for nothing. What then was said of the Jews, we see uh, repeated for these men. They do have a zeal for God. I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but it is not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of God's righteousness and wishing to establish their own, they are not subject to the righteousness of God. My brethren, share my compassion. Where you find such men, wish no concealment. Let there be no perverse pity in you. Where you find them, wish no concealment at all. Contradict and refute them. Resist them or persuade them to join us. For already two councils have in this cause sent letters to the apostolic sea, whence also receipts have come back. They are officially rejected. The cause is ended. Oh, that the error might someday end. Therefore we admonish so that they may take notice. We teach so that they may be instructed. We pray so that their way may be changed. Isn't that powerful? What a great sermon. Imagine being there in Hippo, listening to him preach this message. And it's amazing the things he says. It's, it's powerful. Notice how Augustine refutes the Pelagian emphasis on unfettered free will. As though God has no power or no right to get involved in the inner workings of a human heart. Augustine said that man lost his unfettered free will by sinning. He likens it to the victim beaten up and bleeding along the side of the road in the parable of the Good Samaritan. That man cannot get up. We cannot get up. We cannot save ourselves. Christ then is the ultimate good Samaritan who picks us up, puts us on the donkey, bears us to an inn so that we may be healed. And therefore, he says, we have no right to boast. But early in the sermon, he zeroes in on a key text from John 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Augustine says so powerfully, the Father draws, not leads. Draws is a forceful thing. The Greek word refers to the forceful drawing or pulling of a dragnet through the water to gather fish or the drawing of a sword forcefully out of a scabbard. It's a forceful thing. That's what the Father must do to everyone who comes to Christ. You cannot come to Christ in faith unless the Father first draws you. That's what the text says. And what is it to come to Christ? Augustine's somewhat humorous here in his sermon. It is a journey, he says, but it's not of a physical distance. It's a journey of love in the heart. God's omnipresent. He's everywhere. You don't need a journey anywhere. It's an internal spiritual journey that you make. You don't have to have to take a voyage. 
but it is a journey. It's, it's not a physical distance, but of love in the heart. Moving from unbelief to faith is a heart journey. Moving from hatred of God to love of God is a heart journey. But no one can make that journey unless the Father draws him, not leads, as though we're following of our own unfettered free will. He draws us as though a certain force must be put on our hearts. This forceful drawing by the Father, Augustine calls violence, almost humorously, violence, the violent drawing. He's almost laughing, I think, a little bit here. I think he's being facetious, perhaps mocking the Pelagian caricature of sovereign grace, as though somehow the Father is raping us or dragging us Neanderthal-style, kicking and screaming into some cave. What violence does the Father do to our souls in saving us, so-called? Augustine calls it soft and sweet violence. Remember what he says, think not that this is harsh and injurious violence. It is soft. It is sweet. It is sweetness itself that draws you. It is not the sheep drawn when the succulent plants are shown to him. And I, and I think that there is no compulsion of the body, but there's an assembling of the desire. So too do you come to Christ. Wish not to plan a long journey. When you believe, then you come. For to him who is everywhere, one comes by loving, not by pay taking a long voyage." End quote. So do you see that? We're drawn by love, by desire. Therefore, I, I really like the therapeutic image here. Our hearts are healed and then they're attracted and come. It's when we're defective in sin that we are not drawn. Then Augustine zeroes in on the exercise, the true exercise of free will, which he does not deny. Before grace comes to the heart, our freedom consists in refusing to come. That's where you get to be free. You get to choose how you'll refuse the call. Sovereign grace consists in overcoming our resistance, so we actually do come to Christ. Remember what he said, No doubt, if you come not, it is your work. But if you do come, it is God's work. That's sovereign grace. So yes, you have freedom to say no in whatever way you choose. But you will say no until God overcomes your rebellion. This shows how we are being saved by sovereign grace and how that results in humility. He said this, And even after you have come and are walking in the right way, become not proud, lest you perish from it. Happier are those that trust in Him, not in themselves, he said, but in Him. We are saved by grace, not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. He's just quoting Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 there. So that no one will boast. Why do I continue to say this to you, said Augustine? It is because there are men, Pelagians, who are ungrateful to grace and attribute much to unaided and wounded nature. So he's directly addressing the Pelagians here. Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism robs all followers from two great virtues, humility and security. Humility and security, both of them are tied to sovereign grace. By sovereign grace, we are truly, deeply humbled. And by sovereign grace, we are absolutely secure. Augustine goes right for the false teaching that minimizes grace in his sermon. He says, grace that was hidden in the Old Testament is now manifest to the whole world. Even though the Jew may be ignorant of it, why should Christians be enemies of grace? Why presumptuous of themselves? That's a strong phrase, isn't it? We're presumptuous based on ourselves very proud of ourselves. Why so ungrateful to grace? What a great phrase. Ungrateful to grace. For why did Christ come? 
Was not nature already here? We already had free will. We had it before Jesus came. Then why, did, why was he born of the Virgin Mary? Why did God send him into the world if by free will we could have saved ourselves? And the law was already here. We already had the law. We just weren't keeping it. We were violating it. And it's openly what, what, what uh, Paul says in Galatians 2.21. Augustine citing it openly where Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Galatians 2.21. I think Augustine is right in calling our attention to the book of Galatians, which was refuting the works-oriented Judaizers who were effectively setting aside the grace of God and telling uh, the, the Jewish converts to Christ that they had to keep saving themselves by obeying the law. That's what the Pelagians were doing. It's the same thing. It's no gospel at all. By emphasizing human free will, they were asserting basically that man can save himself by making continual right choices. But if that's so, then why did Christ ever come? Why did Christ die on the cross? We already had law and human nature. If those are enough, Christ died for nothing. And then Augustine speaks openly and directly about the Pelagian false doctrine and the people who are teaching it. He says, like Paul said of, of the Jews, the unbelieving Jews of the time, they have a zeal for God. I bear them witness that they are zealous for God, but it's not according to knowledge. They're actually seeking, as Paul says in Romans 10, to establish their own righteousness and not that righteousness that's given by grace through faith. So Augustine, very, very clear on this. He, there, he then finishes by appealing to his fellow church members to join him in refuting the Pelagian error. He says, my brethren, share my compassion. Where you find such men, wish no concealment. I wonder if he's referring to Pelagius' dishonest hiding of his true doctrine. He says, pull it out, bring it out in the open, address it. Let there be no perverse pity in you. Don't pity them. Where you find them, wish no concealment at all. Contradict them and refute them, resist them, or persuade them to join us. We have to, all of us, stand firm for sound doctrine. I think pastors like me need to preach more like this to their people. I want you, all of you, to rally to the cause here. Let's refute error and base everything we do on the truth of the word. Augustine was aware that despite the fact that the Roman Catholic hierarchy was formally ruling against Pelagius and his followers, he knew that the real danger was that the ideas, his ideas, were spreading and were popular, and people were following them. He said, the cause is ended, would that the error might someday end. Amen. Therefore, we admonish so that they may take notice. We teach so that they may be instructed. We pray so that their way may be changed. And friends, it's true today. As I said, the overwhelming majority of evangelicals today follow some form of Pelagianism. They feel that the ultimate truth in theology is freedom of the will by man, and that God cannot or will not ever violate the human free will as though it's some holy of holies into which he is not permitted to intrude. Like the picture, and I heard this one a long time ago, of Jesus standing outside a, a vine-covered door, I guess, I've seen the artwork and, and knocking based on Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And the artist in the, in the picture purposely drew the door as having no doorknob on Jesus' side. He does the knocking, we do the opening. That's Pelagianism. And it's the very thing I heard early in my Christian life as well. We need to stand firm as Augustine did and reject it. The key concept ultimately here is sovereign joy. As he wrote in Confessions, during all those years of rebellion, said Augustine, where was my free will? 
What was the hidden secret place from which it was summoned in a moment so that I might bend my neck to your easy yoke? How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and you took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure, though not to flesh and blood. You who outshine all light and yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts. You who surpass all honor, though not in the eyes of men who see all honor in themselves. O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. What is Augustine saying there? Ultimately, what happens, we are saved by free choices we make once our hearts are healed by the working of the Holy Spirit. Once we are born again, we see how delightful God is and, and how delightful Jesus is. And we willingly, gladly rise up and choose him now that we are healthy. So the therapeutic view of salvation is the way to go. We are, our will is healed and we are set free to follow Christ. That's what the sovereign joy does and driving out sin. So, fundamentally, uh, Augustine's work against Pelagius was powerful and uh, effective, and I would commend it to you. Now, there's a lot of other aspects to Augustine that we can talk about. Augustine was a mystic. Uh, he was a, a meditator, and uh, he wrote deeply of his love relationship with God. Sovereign joy takes roots in, in a man whose constant hunger and desire is after God and God alone. He wrote in one of his writings, The soul of men shall hope under the shadow of your wings. They shall be made drunk with the fullness of your house, and of the torrents of your pleasures you will give them to drink. For in you is the fountain of life, and in your light shall we see light. Give me a man in love, he knows what I mean. Give me one who yearns. Give me one who is hungry. Give me one far away in, the, in this desert who is thirsty and sighs for the spring of the eternal country. Give me that sort of a man. He knows what I mean. But if I speak to a cold man, he does not know what I am talking about. That is a deep love relationship they have with God. Now, Augustine was not perfect. There were limits uh, to his, his vision and his theological understanding. He created lasting problems for the Roman Catholic Church. For example, his complex sacramentology, his trust in infant baptism and in, in the Lord's Supper, the sacraments, uh, complete with doctrines of baptismal regeneration, that babies are actually born again when they're baptized, and a sacrificial understanding of the Mass as though the priest were offering Jesus up, uh, and his understanding of sacramental efficacy uh, in which the thing worked by itself, whether you understood it or not, his hierarchical ecclesiology with the Pope at the top on down, uh, complete with a doctrine of the papacy, belief in the authority of the church, um, and an understanding of the visible church as God's kingdom on earth, his doctrines of saintly uh, intercession, like saints interceding for us, his doctrine of purgatory, his doctrine of penance, his doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. In short, that's all the theology that, was, that came to full fruit in medieval Roman Catholicism and had to be corrected by the reformers. B.B. Warfield defined the Reformation as the triumph of Augustine's doctrine of grace over Augustine's doctrine of the church. One of them delightful, the other one messed up, in my opinion, and also Warfield's opinion. Also, some scholars blame Augustine for the Roman Catholic Church's habit of using force to compel people to repent and believe, like the Crusades or the Inquisition and missionaries who used 
military force to make converts. Augustine based it on Luke 14.23, which in a parable it says, The master told his servant, Go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house may be full. Augustine taught that the church must at times use force to convert a heretic. In his writings against the Donatists, he said that many have come to faith by being guided aright by love, but more often have they been corrected by fear. <laughs> the, la the latter is the more effective way to bring a person to Christ than the former. The twelve disciples were guided aright by love when Jesus called them to follow, but the Apostle Paul was corrected by fear when he was captured by Christ's voice, dashed to the ground by his power, struck with physical blindness. Augustine pointed out that because Paul was compelled or forced to become a Christian, he was a more effective minister of the gospel. So Augustine said effectively, Jesus teaches in the parable that we must first invite people to believe in Jesus, but if they refuse, then we should compel them by whatever means we can think of, even use force if needed to confess Christ. Well, friends, there are no perfect heroes in church history. Every single one of them has blind spots, even significant errors that lead to massive problems down the line. It's amazing to me, isn't it, that God can use such imperfect people to build his eternal church. So as we conclude today, I want you to go into your week knowing that your loving Heavenly Father holds your life and all your ways in his hands. Nothing can happen to you apart from his will. He orchestrates the rise and fall of mighty empires and the death of sparrows that no one ever sees. He has numbered the very hairs of your head and all the days ordained for you are written in his book before one of them came to be. And he has gone ahead of you to prepare specific good works for you to walk in, good works that are essential to his eternal kingdom. Just as your brothers and sisters in Christ live for his glory in their days, so live for him now in yours. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.